Welcome back to Career Tools, everybody. This week, part two of choosing company to work for, chapter one, factors to consider. Okay, let's talk about opportunities. This is something that I see most people missing because they tend to focus, again, we're talking about company analysis here, but they tend to focus way too much on that first job, on that location, on what salary they're going to get in that first job, and they haven't expanded their scope. So let's talk about opportunity. So you have more opportunities if you're able to stay in a company. Every time you change companies, you lose the network and your reputation and all the things that you build up. Exactly. So actually what you want to do is stay in companies if you can and move up within them and not have to move outside of the company every time you want to be promoted. And folks, this is a career tools fundamental principle. 30 years ago, the only way you could have a career was staying in one company. I mean, there were exceptions. The press started writing about people that were hopping jobs and so on. Of course, companies stopped managing people's careers a number of years ago. There are very few companies left who truly, truly manage your career, unless you're at the very top and they're they're doing session C, GE equivalents. So there's been an experiment, and I think it's been a successful one, that you can have a career by moving around. You can go from job to job to job to job, and if you know recruiters really well and you produce outsiders results, you can. For the vast majority of people, career tools and manager tools guidance is all things be equal, which it never is, and which it may not apply to you, whoever one person you're listening to in your commute, wherever you're going. All things being equal, it is far better to stay at one company because of what Wendy said, goodwill. Goodwill, folks is the reduction in friction that occurs because of your role power, your relationship power, your expertise power, the people you know, how well you've done things, the ability to call somebody over in printing and say, I need something at the last minute, okay? The longer you stay at a company, the better your internal network is, assuming you follow general career tools and managerial guidance about results and relationships. And if you leave a company, even if you get promoted and you get a noticeably more role power somewhere else, learning where the coffee machine is and not knowing how to fill out an expense report and not having a friend to help you fill out your expense report or not knowing anybody in accounting or for that matter, accounts payable or, or for that matter, payroll. All of those things detract from your goodwill. And if in fact you were a stock to be traded, your goodwill assuming you're engaging in effective career practices, gradually grows over time. Um, The more you jump around, the more your goodwill has to come strictly from the strength of the role you're put in and the kind of compensation package you get. Uh, And that really is reserved for the top 1% of people in terms of careers. I have a very good friend, uh, Roland Smith. Roland has been CEO of a couple of companies. He was CEO of Arby's. He's CEO of somebody else now and was a very successful brand manager for a long time. And I'm pretty sure he has association with venture capital. But regardless, Roland had the antithesis of what we're talking about, where he literally produced such great results. He got hired for two jobs up at one place and then two jobs up at another place. And he's been the CEO for the last number, number, number of years. That's not for the faint of heart, nor is it for the vast majority of people. Remember the career tools guidance that we give is for 90% of the people, 90% of the time. It is far more effective for you to stay at one company longer. And one of the things, not just in terms of goodwill, but also you, I think you mentioned growth, right, Wendy? Mm -hmm. I mean, a company that's growing, um, I think people miss that. A company that grows as it gets bigger. 
Right, because there are opportunities, and all things being equal, more companies tend to say we'd rather promote from within. And when your division doubles in size, that means there's a double number of management positions above you. All things being equal, which I know is not true, and somebody's going to write me hate mail and say, no, you're wrong, my company grew, but I didn't grow. Well, okay. <laughs> but but the math works in your favor Rising in terms of thinking about, about, about opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking for growing companies, um, one of the things that, that people assume is a positive and isn't always is companies which hold a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So people who basically have big current accounts, checking accounts, but the company version. What companies should be doing with that cash or what they will do is either invest it, which is a good thing because if they're investing, they're growing, they're, they're going to new markets. Yeah, when Wendy says invest, she doesn't mean buy other companies' stocks, guys. She means investing in new plants, new facilities, new markets, those kinds of things. Spending their profits to expand the base of the company because they believe spending their company's money, their profits on their own company provides them the greatest return on investment of that in that use of that cash. Okay, sorry, Wendy, go ahead. So that's a good thing to look for. The second thing they do is buy back stock. So those co public companies which have sold parts of themselves in order to raise capital previously will buy it back so that they um, have more control over themselves. Yeah, and I think that probably just that probably just went over the head of about 60% of our listeners. Buying stock back is a little bit in the news right now, guys, in 2013, because a lot of companies have a lot of cash because they can't seem to find things to invest in because the company's not growing. And so the best investment they can have is to own more of the company, which makes the company more valuable to each of its stockholders. And they believe their company stock is a good investment because it will go up in price. And therefore, the money they spend on the stock will be worth more at some point in the future. But stock buybacks are not inherently hugely common as a fundamental principle way of companies growing. Okay. And then the third thing they can do with cash, uh, there's a lot of things they can do with cash, but the third major thing they do with cash is make acquisitions. And, and yes. you can think, oh, they've got a lot of cash, so that's a good thing. But it's not really a good thing for a company to hold a lot of cash. In the same way, it's not really a good thing for you to have a lot of money in your checking account. What you should be doing is paying off your mortgage or um, investing in your house or investing in your kid's right. education, turning it into Turning it something. into more money. Yeah. Achieving your values and turning it into more money, yes. Exactly. And the other thing that people miss is they think an acquisition is a good thing. But the reason why companies buy other companies <laughs> is for their technology or their IP or their plants. Or for their people. Or for their people, sometimes for their people. And then they merge them into their own company and there is always some duplication, particularly in, non, uh, in staff roles, so HR and finance right. and so on. And the duplicates, that means layoffs. And so you have to be right. careful with acquisitions that, you know um, – just this week, um, Yahoo uh, bought Tumblr, yeah. and Melissa Mayer right. said specifically, we're going to leave Tumblr to run itself, because every other acquisition Yahoo has made, they've bought for the technology, and they've closed it down in order to integrate their own t their, it, into their own technology, and that means layoffs. So... Yep. You have to be careful when people are acquiring other companies, people then that's a good thing. And it, and it isn't not necessarily for the opportunities. Right. 
another another point about this relative to opportunities is that, uh, if you're talking to an executive, you what we're trying to do is help you see a way to think differently than just listening to the person who says you come to work here. It's the the the, the sky is the limit. You got so many opportunities. It's so incredible. It's just it's just unbelievable. And there are some companies that work in industries which have become what we call commoditized. In other words, the the products that that industry tends to sell are hard to differentiate on the basis of quality. And so pricing and service become really important, but margins again become thin. Food is the basic food staples, rice and beans and bread have become commoditized. Wheat, as an example, is a core product in that. Please, if you're a gluten-free person, don't, don't take this out of me, but, but, it, but wheat is a commodity. Rice is a commodity. Those things are traded on the commodities trading uh, floors, although I think those floors are going away now. If you work at a company like that where margins are fairly thin, the opportunity within your industry is noticeably less. You may, in fact, do exceptionally well there, but you may struggle relative to somebody else who works in an industry. A good example would be computer chips. If we're talking about integrated circuits as opposed to RAM or something like that, is not commoditized and therefore has an opportunity to charge based on new products and services. It's unlike new products, new, new features and benefits. It's unlikely that people are going to start selling rice in a way that it fundamentally doubles the value of rice to a person who consumes it. That said, there's a great story in California about selling, um, uh, I want to say tangerines, but that's not right. Um, uh, there's a guy who branded his type of orange cuties and people buy cuties like crazy. Me and my kids love cuties and it's strictly a branding thing. And he made it not a commodity. He turned this small tangerine or orange or forgetting what it actually is into a non-commodity. And that's very, very rare. And again, if you're in a commodity business, um, iron ore would be a commodity. The energy profile of iron ore is fairly well known. And companies buy iron ore based on its energy profile. Company, many companies consume iron ore to make things like steel or to create other forms of energy. And in doing so, they have a fairly standard price. You're going to sell me this much iron ore. The market says it's worth this. You can try to charge me more, but unless you can deliver it faster. And by the way, it's going to come in a gigantic container ship, for instance. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any more value you can give me than the guy next to you who's going to charge me a half a penny less. Um, Printers. So. Okay. You know, every, printers are one thing that we all that we all have, and like everybody's got one now, and they're not much different from each other. They all now have integrated right. scanners and so on. The margins aren't great on them because the margins are on the ink, so printers are pretty commoditized. Right. Okay, so the other thing is people think that a company which is going for globalization is is a good thing and will have lots of opportunities. And it's true, they do, but globalization or infiltrating China or India or Africa or one of the other countries is a lot harder and a lot slower than people think. You know, it's not going to be five years. It's going to be 10 or 15. And company reports are usually optimistic about how quickly they can penetrate markets. 
There's nothing wrong with choosing a company because you want to see the world. And there are two companies you're looking at. One is based in, let's say, France and is really well-known in France, entrenched in France, and is a well-regarded producer, as opposed to, say, living in Spain and starting with a company that's a similar industry, much smaller, but says, we want to be global. We believe that we have a global value proposition. And you say, and I want to see the world. If your company is a French company and does great in France and you want to see the world, it's unlikely a good match for you. And there are many people who say, I, I want to see the world. And of course, oftentimes people say, well, maybe the way to see the world is to go on vacation. But some people say, no, I want to work overseas. Great. That's part of the reason why Wendy works in Texas now, because she said, I want to live overseas. I don't know that we're ter a terribly global company, although we have listeners in every country of the world, but you've got to be careful about, you, you've got to think about globalization and it may or may not be a direct correlation to opportunity. And you've got to be very careful about reading annual reports because almost all companies say we're becoming more global simply because if you're only in France and there's a market of 100 and 200 million people in France or whatever, however many people there are in France, well, there's billions in the world. Why wouldn't you want to sell your product to more people? Just because there are more people doesn't mean you necessarily can sell it more. And that leads us right to location, right? Indeed. So does the company have locations in the place you want to go to? So they might have a site that's just down the road for you and you could work there for a couple of years and then find that they're going to close it and the next opportunity is in a town 50 miles away or in another state that that happened to me i worked in a um in a location that had i don't know i had like a 10 minute commute and mm -hmm. they decided there wasn't enough work there so three days a week i ended up with an hour's commute and that one made a big difference to my life 10 minutes to an hour and i carried on doing it because i could see the opportunity was there but had i known that at the beginning i might not have made the choice that i made here's my favorite story it was counseling a young man who had two opportunities. One was with Coca-Cola and another was with Procter & Gamble. And he really loved um, Atlanta. He loved Atlanta. And if, if you don't know this, folks, Coca-Cola was headquartered in Atlanta and Procter & Gamble headquartered in Cincinnati. Both fine cities. Different people like different things about them. Neither one is bad or good overall, but in general, some people prefer one to the other. And he really said, he said, I, I want a job in Atlanta. And so Procter & Gamble offered him a job in Atlanta. He turned down Coca-Cola in Pennsylvania. And three years after he'd been in Atlanta, he moved to Cincinnati. And he was never going to leave Cincinnati ever again. He got his three years in Atlanta, but he started missing Atlanta two or three years later. And I said, dude, you had an offer from Coke. And he says, yeah, but it was in Pennsylvania. I said, but all roads and Coke, generally, not always, but if you really want to work in Atlanta for Coke, it's much more likely to work in Atlanta than you were work in Pennsylvania. And I was just stunned that the myopia of, no, I want to go to Atlanta. Now, I don't recall. It may have been a young lady who was interested that lived in Atlanta at the time. I don't know. But my recollection is Atlanta was what he thought of his home. And he ended up leaving Procter in several years. Now, it didn't hurt him because, of course, the reputation of the company helped him and he can get a job in in Atlanta by saying, I worked at Procter. But there are too many times where people make a choice myopically based on the now rather than thinking about, notice what we're saying here, guys, is locations, yeah. not location, right? And a company, companies tend to have regional bases or regional histories, and they may in fact be global. And you may want to go to China, but maybe all of their offices are in Dalian when in fact you love Shanghai or Shenzhen. Um, so think carefully about near and long-term 
locations. And there's nothing wrong with considering your family. If your spouse's family is all in one location and your your spouse says, that's where I really want to end you know, our, our lives together, you know, I, w- I want to go back home, that's fine. Just consider that and think, consider that as one of the factors you weight in your career. And the other thing that people don't remember is if you're part of a, a two or three person team and, and you say you're in marketing and you're part of the two oh, or three so good. Yeah. the two or three person team in New Mexico, but the rest of the marketing team, like the main hub for marketing is in Anchorage, then if one person leaves and one person gets laid off, there's only one person left in New Mexico in marketing, and that's you. There are no corporate teams of one. No, there are not. Right. And and the likelihood, I don't know, maybe it's only 50-50, but there is a good chance that they'll decide, well, this is silly. Why have we got a marketing person in New Mexico who has to um, telecommute or we have to talk on the phone all the time when the rest of the team is together? Yeah. Let's move that job to Anchorage. Well, that's a pretty long yeah. way. Being on a satellite team can be a great thing. It's autonomy and, you know, you get local market and all that kind of stuff. But it can be a bit iffy as well. So you need to think about that carefully. The Anchorage in New Mexico thing is a great one because here's what I've seen happen far too often. You're on a satellite team. One person leaves to go to another company. Another person decides, I'm going to take a sales role for a couple of years. You're the one person left you may not have any voice in what they choose to do. For instance, they may never offer you a move to Anchorage because you may have mentioned two or three times before, I love it down here, I love it down here, I love it down mm-hmm. here. And when you go to Anchorage, you stupidly make jokes about the weather. God is cold, God is this, God is that. Now look, you'd be happy to move to Anchorage, but the assumption is, hey, all we got left is that guy Horseman down in, in Albuquerque. And you know, every time he comes up here, he complains about the weather. And, he, and I, I, think his, I think his folks are in like, Arizona or something. He's got a daughter in Scottsdale. So I don't, you know, I don't. So look, let's just close Albuquerque. And suddenly your VP comes in for a trip and says, hey, listen, I got some bad news. We're closing Albuquerque. Oh, great. Well, let's talk about Anchorage. Actually, we're seeing some resetting in the industry. Um, and we don't see an opportunity for you to come to, uh, to Anchorage. And you look at him like, <gasps> And you say, well, no, I'd really like to come. No, we've already thought it through. We've got a package for you. And I know this is a hard time, but we'll be happy to provide you some outpatient services. And literally through a series of jokes and through a series of, I love the warm weather, your career with that company is over. You've talked yourself out of it. And guys, you may say, oh, this company is not being fair. Yeah, well, hoping that all organizations and all people you work with are going to be fair to you all the time. Hope is not a method, folks. And those kinds of considerations are reasonable. And let me just put a plug in here. We encourage you to come to our forums, sign up, it's free, and ask questions about these kinds of issues. And ask somebody. Again, we'll have more podcasts about how to dig in, learn more about these kind of things to understand companies in detail and to learn where you can find out information about locations and so on. But gee whiz, don't not consider the location and the future locations and the relative value of your location to the organization and where you'll be in the next 10 years. Okay, so the next one is financials. So the the public companies have public financials. And no matter, like even the smallest companies, there's a blogger, there's somebody out there watching the industry and commenting on those financials, even if you can't read them yourself. There are industry commentators for everything. And as long as you're reading a few, rather than taking one person's opinion, um, you'll probably get a good 
understanding for what those financials mean and and whether they're good or bad compared with other people in the industry or comparable companies. And if you don't read the financials and the company has no money and you get laid off, then that's kind of your own fault. I'm going to be mean. Kind of your own fault. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to say, I'd, I'd rather be mean and have people say thank you for being mean than, than the other way around, than, than blow smoke at people. And private companies don't have to and generally don't publish their financials. Although I was looking this morning, um, I thought Mars was privately owned. And there were, there were... S- yeah, there were estimations of its value oh, all yeah. over the web um, and revenue and all sorts of things. There's a lot of information that people are either guessing or working out. Yeah, and, and to be fair, if you're talking about a financial person in the banking industry, investment banking, even if it is private, those numbers are fairly accurate. It's one thing mm-hmm. to have somebody on a Yahoo message board say, I think they made about $15 billion last year. No, that's not it. But there are all kinds of industry reports and stuff that you can get that are widely available. Not easy, but but worth a little digging for that will give you some sense of the recent history of companies. Shoot, I remember several years ago, I was trying to help a guy. So let's just do a Fortune magazine search of all their mentions of the company. It was private. In fact, this company was Cargill, one of the biggest, most successful private companies that, by the way, sells a lot of commodities, as it happens. It's in the agricultural food business. And and. You, you can get all kinds of information about cargo simply by piecing together bits and pieces over 10 or 15 or 20 articles over two or three years. Um, and I'm amazed at the number of people who aren't willing to do it and don't consider financials other than, oh, they're big. That's to yeah. me, the biggest single analysis that I've seen people make is big. Whether it's knowable or not, they don't seem to care. They know that Cargill is big. I think it's a $60 billion, if not an $80 billion company, but it's private. Uh, Cargill versus, uh, it's big versus small. And there are big companies that are commoditized and are barely making money. And there are small companies that are growing fast that have all kinds of margins that are well capitalized. So it's worth doing some digging. And again, we'll do a future cast in which we explain how to dig. And even smaller companies, really small companies in small towns, like if you if you really don't want to move from your 10,000 person town, um, the small companies in small towns, one, they have really good grapevines in small towns. Everybody knows everybody and everybody knows something and everybody knows who just got a new car and a new house and who's spending. And if those are the company owners, that'll tell you a little bit at least about their financial position. Yeah. And there are people who are listening right now to you, Wendy, who said, well, that's hard. I'd have to you know, find out more from the small town. I may have to describe the local paper. Yep. And this is one of the most important professional decisions you'll ever make in your life. And in 10 hours, the amount of information, it's like, well, there's a lot to do. Okay. Dedicate a couple of weekends and two or three hours Saturday, two or three hours Sunday, a couple hours in the week, and then a couple hours over the next weekend. And you'll have a pretty good idea. And you may learn enough to eliminate one of four companies because it's clear that one's a mistake. And now you have less work to do on the other three. And I'm just amazed at the number of people who just go based on, oh, I know that company. They're good. And okay, our last point was customer base. Mm -hmm. So obviously for any company to survive, to grow, they have to have a solid and preferably growing customer base. So for example, if you think about car seats for children, you'd think, oh, babies are born. There's lots of babies born. The world population is going up. Yeah. So um, we must be good with car seats. But actually, if you're in Europe, the birth rate is going down, like, really fast. Fast. 
really fast. So making car seats for children in Europe is actually not a growing business because even though you're you're not supposed to buy secondhand car seats for your children, you have to buy you're, you're advised to buy them firsthand. There's less children, and so it, and it's not worth buying them. You know, in in some of the grow, fast growing company, countries by birth rate, there aren't a lot of cars. So you have to be a little bit more analytical than oh, there's lots of children, must be it's good. just like food. There's everybody needs food, right? So therefore, it's never it's not a bad industry. Well. It isn't, but but that is that's not that's the grossest possible analysis, and it's probably not a good one. On the other hand, baby boomers are all reaching uh, retirement age and have disposable income, and they're all traveling and you know playing golf and all those kind of things. So you'd think that that was a good industry to be in. Health is one of the industries expected to grow quickly in the next ten years, but a lot of the people are living longer and so working longer. And yes. so the proportion of, of those people who you could be selling to is lower. Right. So again, it takes more analysis than just the obvious. And folks, we, we make casts that are going to work 5, 10, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, not things that are only true when we say them. There's been a lot of press in 2013 and 2012 and 2011. The two sectors that are growing the most are healthcare and education. Be careful. Okay, that is not analysis. What some reporter says about the future of your industry is not necessarily accurate, particularly since a lot of reporters don't know anything about the businesses they're covering or don't know how to do industry analysis. Wall Street Journal, yeah, probably. Economist, yeah. Financial Times, probably. Or Financial Times more so than the Economist. But the reason people are saying healthcare and education is growing is because it's easy to find out how much money the governments are spending on those two things. Yes, there is, at least in the U.S., which has a lot of disposable income, which is a big, which is a higher percentage of the world's economy than the number of people it represents per capita of the or percentage of the world. Uh, in the U.S., part of that healthcare uh, growth that, oh, I ought to have a career in healthcare for the next 20 years, is a function of baby boomers needing more healthcare. Uh, people who are getting older, and, and frankly, my age, the next 20, 30 years, and one hopes 50 years, right? However, while that is certainly true, it's also true that the specialty of gerontology, which is taking care of old people, is an incredibly burgeoning field. And there's all kinds of other parts of healthcare that are not doing well. And the analysis that simply the government is spending more money isn't necessarily a good one. And there is a growing sense that that data, healthcare and education, may in fact be misleading because there's also a, a coming decline. Now, you only have to think 30 years into the future for your career, but be cautious of believing what the generally accepted, the common wisdom is, because of course, wisdom isn't common. And you have to do more digging than just accepting, well, the government's spending more money there, so therefore, that should be a growing industry. It may very well be, and you may end up with the government as a customer, which may affect your margins, which may not be good. So we covered compensation, values, industry stability, reputation, opportunities, locations, financials, and finally, customer base. So there's a lot of things to weigh up against each other, but it's really, I think it's really worth it because you end up with an understanding of the industry and the and the, the kind of milieu that you're in and therefore a better search. When you're searching for jobs, you're, you understand 
where it's going to be a good job and where it's going to be a bad, a bad job, not just based on the headline figure of right. the salary. And I, I think you take it a step further, folks. This is a fundamentally more analytical and repeatable way to think about a job search and the company you go to work for. If you don't use this technique, but you say, ooh, that's a great job, you don't learn from that's a great job. You just pick the job and you're not thinking more broadly. Every time you do this, when you're thinking about a career search, and you're gonna have more than one job slash career searches in your career, that's, I think that's inevitable, and you're responsible for managing it, the more you do this, the better off you'll get. Further, and I think this is the big one, if you're married, you have to include your spouse in this conversation, and we'll talk about that in a future cast, but listen carefully here. If you include your spouse and something doesn't work out, you can go back and look at the analysis, and if there's a downtime, the analysis may cause you to stick it out through the downtime. If all you did was choose a job, and then there's a downtime, I've seen it happen before. Spouses say, well, you made a poor choice. Well, actually, no, honey, I didn't. Let's look at the analysis again. You were involved. The analysis made sense. Right now, this job that we're taking isn't that good, but the opportunities are there, the reputation is there, the industry stability is there, and so this datum is an aberration. If you only choose based on a job, every single datum is a trend. Having an understanding of why you decided it causes you to, in many cases, double down in, in a bad moment for your company or industry or whatever. It also makes it easier to communicate about the kind of career choices that you make, which affect your entire family. And that's it. I know it was long, but these are the kind of decisions that are important. The decision you make early in your career affects everything later in your career as well. And that's it. Bye, everyone. That's it. Parts one and two are done. Hopefully it was helpful. Big decision, worth a lot of time, worth understanding how you do it. See you next week.